Hi Nick, uh, my name is Ruben. I'm a year 13 politics student from Nottingham. Um, just finished paper three today and I just wanted to reach out, not necessarily because I have a question per se, um, but just to reach out and say that I'm very grateful and appreciative of the work that you've done and the podcast that you've produced. Um, they have been incredibly beneficial for me and allowed me to kind of gain a deeper understanding of politics um, and kind of really motivated me to uh, look beneath the surface and whether whenever I'm writing my essays kind of think of it more holistically rather than just trying to get marks um, and I've learned a lot and I've had a lot of laughs listening to your podcast and the quips that you make and um, I've raved about you to my teacher and said that he should uh, collaborate with you um, but anyway just keep doing what you're doing uh, I think it's great plus 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 it's a great idea really affordable um, and yeah thank you very much Welcome back to the A-Level Politics Show, folks. It's July 2022, and well done to all those upper sixth, second-year students who have finished their public exams, and well done to the first years uh, for getting through to the second year um, and for enjoying your course, and now onwards to US politics. Most students do US politics in the second year. Some of you may have already started it in the summer term. Um, and so this, in July 2022, I'm guessing, is a podcast perhaps for teachers who are still keen to uh, improve their subject knowledge when they're teaching, um, but also for those students who want to get ahead of the game, who want to understand a bit about US politics uh, before the real stuff begins in September or October or whenever your teacher uh, starts um, US politics. So the question today is this, evaluate the view that the features of the US Constitution no longer work and are no longer relevant in the 21st century. Now that's a bit of a convoluted question. Basically, does the US Constitution work? Are the features and principles of the US Constitution still relevant? Now, you might want to check out another podcast that I've done on this, um, on the nature of the US Constitution, which is slightly different. And to do that, you'll need to subscribe to Plus Plus Plus. That's just $1.99 a month and you get access to the entire back catalogue plus two bonus podcasts in addition to the freebie every single month. Now, let's just talk you through the features of the US Constitution. And there are essentially five, but I've lumped um, a couple of them together to make for easy structure of essays. So the first feature is federalism. The second one is limited government. I'm going to be dealing with them at the same time because they are quite similar. And the, 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 the next features I'm going to be lumping together are the separation of powers and bipartisanship. And I'll explain why in a second. And the last feature I'll be looking at are checks and balances. Okay, checks and balances. I think they're so important that I really think you need to deal with these separately in a separate chunky paragraph. Now, let's go back to the question. Evaluate the view that the features of the US Constitution no longer work and are no longer relevant in the 21st century. Well, to no longer work and no longer be relevant, the features of the US Constitution would not prevent the concentration of power and at the same time they would fail to avoid excessive gridlock. They may well also fail to protect rights. The direction of my podcast, 
and of my essay, if I was writing this, is that the features of the US Constitution no longer work and are no longer relevant. Notice that I've taken a very clear direction there, and that's important even in your US politics essays. I've said all along in the UK stuff, you need to have a clear direction. That's also true of US 30 mark questions. Um, and just on a few tips, uh, what I would say is don't be afraid with US politics to explain how things work a little bit before you get into giving your opinion. Um, so when I'm writing, when I'm talking about federalism and limited government in my first section, um, I will be explaining what federalism is and what limited government is before I get on to analysing it. And I think you need to do that a little bit more in US politics. It is also is also showing good knowledge. Uh, but of course, you've got to get on to whether these things work. And that's where the real marks are. So onward with the show. The first section then will be on federalism and limited government. And I'm going to give you some arguments that they do work and are relevant. So here I'm starting perhaps with what I perceive to be the weaker arguments, the, uh, the arguments that they work and are still relevant. And then I'm going to dismiss them. I'm going to trash them, as I like to say to my students. So the founding fathers intended that power would be shared between the federal government and the many states. And we call this federalism. So power sharing was built into the Constitution. The federal government and its three branches were afforded enumerated or what we might call today specific powers. So, for example, Congress was given the power to coin money. But the founding fathers, those who created the Constitution, left it rather vague. They included elastic sections of the Constitution. These are sections of the Constitution uh, whose meaning is vague enough to allow branches of government to stretch their powers. And this, uh, these allowed Congress to stretch its power uh, and take actions that were deemed necessary and proper. The necessary and proper clause in the Constitution allows Congress to claim uh, a mandate to take action on, say, emergencies that it deems at the time to be necessary and proper. The Constitution also gives uh, Congress to look after, and I quote, the general welfare end quote, of America. Um, and again, that's a vague clause. What is general welfare? That can be deemed to be different things at different times. And that um, uh, proponents of the US Constitution would say uh, makes the US Constitution works, ensures this feature of federalism works because it allows Congress to take action that is the, that is necessary. While at the same time, there are bits of the Constitution that sends power back to the states to ensure there's a balance of power, to ensure that power is shared. So Amendment 10 reserves powers not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution to the states. So this arrangement established an inbuilt tension that sought to create a national government that was not overly powerful, essentially a limited government. Let's also focus on the Bill of Rights. These are the first 10 amendments of the Constitution. And they similarly saw a limited government by giving citizens protections against not only federal governments, but their own state governments too. So these so-called national rights, as Ashby calls them, would ensure, for example, the right to privacy in Amendment 4, the rights for accused persons in Amendment 5, and the freedom from, I quote, cruel and unusual punishments, end quote. 
in Amendment 10. Thus, it is possible to say uh, that the features of federalism and limited government are relevant because they seek to protect rights, an important constitutional goal and an important goal for today's society as well. Now, in the 21st century, federalism arguably remains relevant because it still limits the power of central government, just as the founding fathers intended. States still determine most of their own policies on crime, on elections, on taxes, etc. And the six to three conservative majority on the current Supreme Court is likely to rule in favour of states. So in 2022, it will, it will likely allow states to effectively ban abortion in its pending ruling at the time of recording on Dobbs v Jackson and on its forthcoming ruling on New York's restrictive gun laws that appear to breach the Second Amendment. Now, in this sense, federalism is limiting the power of the federal government, something that conservatives and some founding fathers perceive as federalism still working and still being relevant. But let's look at the opposing arguments and the arguments I'm arguing are stronger for the purposes of this podcast, for the purposes of the essay that I may or may not write. Now, in defending federalism, the Supreme Court is effectively harming limited government, if we define limited government as one that supports negative freedom. The idea that the government should uh, avoid getting involved in areas um, that are seen as self-regarding or part of the private sphere, those actions people are taking that seem to have no impact on anyone else. So allowing states to restrict a woman's right to choose is, liberals argue, state governments interfering with what women can do with their bodies. Striking down sensible gun laws, plus the Senate's failure to act after the recent shootings of school children at Sandy Hook elementary school in 2013 shows that the harm principle associated with John Stuart Mill, so heavily associated with limited government and negative freedom as well, is not being applied. Meanwhile, conservatives may argue that federalism has been eroded. They point to federal mandates. These are laws that require states to implement a new policy um, from the federal governments. They often direct states to spend more on programmes that would they would not otherwise have done. They may point to executive orders, presidential actions that do not require congressional approval. So DACA, which was Barack Obama's um, executive order to prevent the deportation of migrants who came to the country as children, that overrode the instincts of state law enforcement to remove persons bought by their parents to the USA illegally when they were children. Now, regardless of the merits of, of DACA, um, states would argue and conservatives would argue that these executive orders are encroaching on the state's freedom uh, to take their own actions on these policies and thus is eroding federalism and thus is ensuring that federalism either doesn't work in the views of conservatives uh, and is certainly not relevant if we now if we're now getting a more centralized federal government. They may also, conservatives may also point to Supreme Court decisions that override the preferences of states. So in 2015, in the Obergefell case, gay marriage was um, legalised in every single state, even those states that didn't actually want to do that. So we can see actually some liberal critiques of federalism and limited government, the idea that rights are not properly protected because the Supreme Court is allowing 
um, states particularly to interfere uh, with people's rights. Um, I've just given the example of uh, the ban on abortion, which liberals would argue interferes with the woman's right to choose. Um, and conservatives equally might criticise uh, federalism and limited government and say that it's not working or no longer relevant because they point to the erosion of federalism and the centralization of power in Washington. So criticisms come from both ways. And for purposes of this essay, for this podcast, I'm just going to accept both. Now on to the separation of powers and the requirement for bipartisanship. The Founding Fathers wanted or wished to avoid the concentration of power in the executive. So the principle of separation of powers created a separate presidency, separate Congress or legislature and a separate judiciary in the Supreme Court. These institutions would enjoy specific enumerated powers and it would be difficult for any one of those institutions, any one of those branches to act alone. For instance, the president would act as commander in chief, but Congress would have the sole power to declare war. Thus, these institutions shared power rather than any one of them being able to dominate it. The different branches would have separate personnel. This is why Obama had to resign his Senate seat when elected president. Now, the division of these branches would require Bipartisan, bipartisanship. This is a willingness of politicians in Congress uh, and in the executive branch to work together. That's exactly what the creators of the Constitution wanted. So bipartisanship was not mentioned in the US Constitution, but it is implied by the very arrangements that the, the, the Founding Fathers established through the separation of powers. Laws could therefore only be passed that had substantial backing as well. So you could argue that this arrangement would promote limited government too. The constitution therefore ensured as well that executive power was not overly concentrated and simultaneously fostered a culture of compromise. These principles arguably remain relevant since they are attractive goals to work towards. It's a nice thing to have politicians from different parties working together. It's a good thing that um, power is not concentrated too much in one branch. And clearly the separation of powers remain institutionally and legally intact, and thus clearly still relevant. And we can see that bipartisanship, particularly during emergencies, is still in evidence in the 21st century. Congress passed the CARES Act, a bipartisan two trillion stimulus package to shore up the economy during the COVID-19 outbreak in April 2020. Democrat Senator Elizabeth Warren said that this bill is not the one I wanted, but its immediate investments are vital. The invasion of Russia by Ukraine in February 2022 led to Congress voting overwhelmingly in favour of a $13.6 billion package in emergency aid. These two examples, the CARES Act and the support for Ukraine, demonstrate that Democrats are willing to put aside their disagreements with Republicans in times of crisis, exactly what the Founding Fathers would have wanted. Now, optimists would further point to the recent agreement reached between 10 Republicans and 10 Democrat senators in June 2022 on tackling gun safety, including an enhanced review of gun buyers under the age of 21, following the killing of 19 elementary school children and teachers in a mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. 
But I'm going to challenge that right away. I'm going to be arguing that the separation of powers and the requirement for bipartisanship do not work and thus are no longer relevant. The separation of powers uh, can be too easily overcome by a president who uses direct authority, such as executive orders, executive agreements and signing statements. The president has used signing statements and these are uh, written statements attached to bills once uh, the president has signed them into law to instruct federal departments not to comply with that law, um, even if they have overwhelming congressional backing. Um, and this is what happened with Bush Jr. Um, when he refused to, well, he, 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 he allowed a law to go through banning torture, partly because it was a popular measure and it certainly had overwhelming congressional uh, support. But then he attached a signing statement to the law banning torture instructing federal agencies not to comply. At the time, uh, waterboarding was continuing in Guantanamo Bay um, for suspected terrorist suspects, and he did not want laws banning torture to get in the way of that so-called enhanced interrogation. Now, the growth of two entrenched political parties, something George Washington had, had cautioned against, has resulted in a growth of partisanship. These are clear ideological divides between the parties and a refusal to compromise at the same time. Now, in a way, ideological divides have existed since the beginning of the Republic, but that refusal to compromise is something that is relatively new or certainly uh, has made a big return um, since the 1990s. This development has meant that the legislative hurdle posed by the separation of powers cannot be overcome very easily. And that is not something the Founding Fathers wanted. They wanted laws to be passed. They wanted challenge to those laws. And the separation of powers was to uh, ensure that that happened. But they did not want lawmaking to become impossible. Republicans in the Senate at the moment are blocking sensible policies on climate change and voting rights. The affirmation by the aforementioned bipartisan gun safety agreement that I um, spoke about Yes, it was reached in June 2022, but it made no mention of restricting the use of assault rifles, AR-15s and the like. The agreement was essentially a cobbled together set of measures, the sum total of what could be agreed upon in a partisan climate, rather than the necessary steps to combat gun violence. In this sense, the separation of powers is no longer working as it is intended. All of these measures can be seen as emergencies, actions on guns, um, actions on climate and so on. Yet the separation of powers is getting in the way and bipartisanship uh, is, 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 has disappeared in those areas. The Senate has also gold-plated, that means added to, these constitutional hurdles by allowing the filibuster, effectively requiring unanimous consent for anything to pass, making a difficult legislative hurdle almost impossible. Now, the filibuster is not in the Constitution, um, but it is a tool, it is a weapon um, for uh, those with partisan instincts. And that means the separation of powers is not allowing laws to be passed, um, of, of any real standing. And it is um, ensuring that bipartisanship doesn't appear to be that relevant on most lawmaking um, endeavours in Congress and in the presidency as well. Before I, I move on to the final section on checks and balances, I just want to 
focus again on the separation of powers, actually. Redistricting, that is gerrymandering of congressional districts for political gain, has resulted in fewer competitive seats, meaning that House members, those in the House of Representatives, do not have to reach to the middle. They do not have to compromise because often they are representing a safe district and the biggest threat they face is from perhaps a more ideological candidate from their own party. So in the Republican Party, uh, maybe moderate conservatives are facing more challenges from Trumpist right wing um, politicians. And therefore, they are more fearful of losing their seat uh, to a candidate like that uh, than they are uh, from a, another centrist candidate. Um, and so they don't necessarily need to um, reach to the middle and compromise. So re-election rates are typically around 90% uh, for uh, members of Congress. And that results in very few politicians needing to what we call cross the aisle uh, and work cooperatively. The introduction of primary elections to choose party candidates has meant that successful campaigners, as I've mentioned, have to appeal more to the party base, those loyal supporters that tend to be more ideological. So in the Republican Party, they tend to be more right wing and in the, um, and the Democrat Party, they tend to be more progressive and left wing. And that's pushed uh, the parties as a whole into a uh, um, more polarised positions. Um, the Democrats moving slightly more to the left um, and the Republicans certainly moving quite far to the right. And this tribal loyalty has, has thus increased, especially around the candidacy of Donald Trump. The rise of social media and Fox News has further polarised debate, making compromise very difficult, ensuring that bipartisanship doesn't have room to flourish. So hardly any Republicans served on the January 6th Select Committee investigating the Capitol riots and the potential criminal actions of President Trump. The trend away from bipartisanship has also therefore hindered meaningful oversight in addition to preventing important legislation. Thus, bipartisanship does not, to, does not appear to be working, does not appear to be relevant. Now, I'm just going to move on to checks and balances. This is the, the, the kind of the third section of my of my essay. And I'm going to uh, firstly outline what they are and argue that they are relevant. So checks and balances were designed to ensure that actions of each branch are carefully considered without hindering the ability of government to take important actions. Let's go through a, a few uh, checks and balances. Congress can reject, amend or delay presidential bills. So Republican lawmakers themselves rejected Donald Trump's attempts to overturn Obamacare. This is an example of a Republican legislature uh, turning against a Republican president. Biden was able to pass his American Rescue Plan Act in March 2021, which provided much needed help for states to fight COVID. Now, this last example shows how the checks on legislation do not necessarily impede crisis management and thus still work. The example regarding Trump and Obamacare demonstrate that um, partisan um, considerations can be put aside um, and parties um, can um, hold accountable um, other members of their party. 
Um, the founding fathers also established numerous checks on the three federal branches so that there would be a balance, so that they would balance each other out and in doing so provide that accountable government. Now accountable government is absolutely vital in a representative democracy and thus will always be relevant because it is an important standard to aim for. And I've, I've used the word relevant there because the, rele the word relevant is in my question. So let's go through some of these uh, checks and balances that try and ensure accountability. The Senate has the power to confirm presidential nominations to the executive and judicial branch. So Trump's nominee for Army Secretary Vincent Viola withdrew his name from the nomination process after it became clear that the Senate would ask some difficult questions regarding potential conflicts of interest um, with relation to his financial affairs. Equally, the House of Representatives can impeach a president and the Senate hears those impeachment trials and can remove that president from office. Trump was impeached for inciting a riot in January 2021, I mentioned that earlier, uh, and a majority of senators, including several Republicans, voted to convict him, even if the required supermajority uh, was not actually reached to, to remove him from office. And by that point, he'd already stepped down anyway because his time uh, as president was up. Now, let's also focus on the Supreme Court here. The Supreme Court has the power of judicial review, another important check and balance, because that ensures that the Constitution remains relevant, even though judicial review is not formally mentioned in the Constitution, is, is accepted that the Founding Fathers uh, would uh, be OK with that, um, since its decisions uh, affect these Decisions relating to judicial review affect public policy and protect citizens' rights against the other branches of government. Remember that the power of judicial review is that power to strike down um, actions by Congress and by the president, declaring them null and void because they are unconstitutional or deemed to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So um, if the Supreme Court is challenging Congress, challenging the president um, and and declaring that their actions uh, do not comply with rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution, that is an example of, of accountability, accountable, uh, uh, of the checks and balances providing accountable government. That's a, an example of one branch um, standing up for the rights of citizens. And therefore, clearly, um, that check and balance is, is relevant and important. So the Defence of Marriage Act, or DOMA, was struck down by the Supreme Court for not affording equal protection to gay couples who were denied federal marriage benefits by this act. And in this sense, the checks that the Supreme Court enjoys ensures that the other two branches do not pass bigoted legislation, ensuring accountable government, fair laws and the continued relevance of the Constitution. After the break, though, we're going to trash all of this. So here are my arguments that the checks and balances do not work and are not relevant. Many checks are either unused or abused. And you can refer to my previous podcast on checks and balances, where I go uh, through them in far more detail um, if you want to find out more about them, because you could get asked questions on specific features of the US Constitution, including checks and balances. But let's go. Let's go for it, shall we? So let's look at appointments. Um, pretty much all of Trump's cabinet was easily approved by the Senate, including climate changer, cli sorry, climate changer. Yes, he is a climate changer. Climate change denier Scott Pruitt, who was confirmed as the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Nearly all of Biden's cabinet picks were waved through as well. Republicans in the Senate refused to vote on Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, despite previous comments 
by Republicans praising his suitability as a Supreme Court judge. The refusal to hold a vote stemmed from Republican unwillingness to give the Democrats a so-called win in an election year. And now this unwillingness appeared to disappear in September 2020 when Trump had a chance to fill the vacancy left by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and duly complied by um, nominating um, Amy Coney Barrett who was far more conservative than her predecessor. And the Senate was happy to, uh, which was controlled by Republicans at the time, the Senate was, was very happy uh, to wave her through. Now, all of these examples show how meaningful accountability has been sidelined by so-called gotcha politics and by partisanship, and thus demonstrate how checks and balances do not work because they've been sidelined for electoral reasons we see that these cabinet appointments are easily waved through. And so therefore, the Senate's ability to check appointments um, has been diminished by partisanship. Now, if we look at impeachment, the congressional investigation into Trump's collusion with Russia in the 2016 presidential election became bogged down in, you guessed it, partisan bickering. Only one Republican senator voted to remove Trump from office during his first impeachment trial in January 2020. Um, now, you could argue Trump was impeached twice and that shows accountability. Um, but if accountability has succumbed to party politics, then these, uh, these checks appear to not be relevant because if only one Republican senator felt that Trump should be removed in 2020 and thus meaning that the, the Trump was essentially acquitted. And if only a few more felt that he should be removed from office uh, in uh, uh, January 2021, um, then again, we can see that the impeachment process is not working as it is supposed to do. It's become uh, completely a victim to partisan considerations. Clinton's impeachment and eventual acquittal by the Senate also split along party lines. Democrats believe it was merely used to punish a president that had beaten Republicans at the ballot box. Let's look at judicial review. Now, I've given reasons to suggest that judicial review is holding the other branches accountable, ensuring that they um, um, comply with the principles of limited government and protect citizens' rights. But arguably, judicial review places too much power in the hands of unelected judges. Liberals believe that the six to three conservative majority on the court will further jeopardise pro progressive legislation. They would point to the Citizens United v FEC 2010 decision, which struck down sensible bipartisan uh, campaign finance laws, limiting the amount of money in politics uh, that Congress passed to, to limit as well corporate influence in election campaigns. That's striking down. They would point to and say that's an example of a court getting involved um, uh, in the business of, of elected politicians and striking down laws that will not serve the country well. Conservatives, meanwhile, may point to court decisions that fail to challenge the power of Congress, including the Sebelius case that upheld Obamacare. So liberals and conservatives will point to different court cases to demonstrate that judicial review is either um, leading to judges having too much power and stepping in, stepping on the toes of what elected politicians do, or that they're not intervening enough uh, to cast aside legislation which politicians believe is unconstitutional. Now, 
If we come to the legislative checks and balances, the ability of Congress to amend, delay, strike down legislation, the ability of um, presidents to veto legislation and the ability of Congress to override uh, legislation, um, we can see that the quality of these specific checks um, is, is dependent on the type of government. So if we have divided government, when one party controls the presidency and one controls the legislature, we can see a severe curtailment um, of um, a president's legislative agenda. Obama uh, was not really able to pass anything of substance in his last six years in office. Is that a good thing? Partisanship or gotcha politics has arguably replaced substantive debate, perhaps most typified by the comments of Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said that his main aim was to make Obama a one term president. So in some ways, these legislative checks uh, have been abused rather than focus on what the country needs. Um, politicians are focusing uh, on how to embarrass a president, how to ensure that they do not secure legislative victories. Equally, when we have united government, when one party controls both uh, the presidency uh, and Congress, we see the opposite problem taking place, where legisl legislation is arguably passed without significant scrutiny. Conservatives argue that Biden's American Rescue Plan Act in 2021 stoked inflation due to the spending increases it involved. The co-equal nature of the legislative chambers, both the Senate and the House, have equal legislative power. They have exclusive powers, but they essentially are, uh, are chambers that have to agree on legislation, both of them, to pass. Arguably, this co-equal nature established in the Constitution further perpetuates the legislative hurdles of the separation of powers, making the passing of law far too difficult, even in times of united government. So what is my conclusion? I think, you don't have to think this by the way, that the features of the US Constitution no longer work and are no longer relevant in the 21st century. I've given you plenty of evidence in this podcast to the contrary, so feel free uh, to flip it around. Why do I think what I think? And that's the important thing. A conclusion has to tell you, tell the examiner what you think and why you think it. Well, I think it because the checks and balances are too often underused, which hinders accountability, or are misused, hindering the ability of lawmakers to take decisive action. Federalism and limited government have been challenged by centralisation through presidential actions and by inaction when it comes to defend the rights of citizens. The Senate, for example, failed to pass an abortion rights bill in May 2020, May 2022 even. And finally, the separation of powers places too high a burden upon compromise, which is severely lacking with the demise of bipartisanship. Now, what I've done there is essentially repeat my judgments that I've made throughout the different sections of this podcast. And that is what your conclusion should do. It should repeat the judgments that you make throughout. The judgments should not be a surprise to the examiner. Let's give you a few more tips, shall we? Explain the intentions of the founding fathers. Explain how the features are supposed to work before judging them. This podcast does that. Refer to specific sections of the constitution. Um, when I was um, talking to you about federalism, I was mentioning the Bill of Rights, I was mentioning Amendment 10, I was mentioning the elastic clauses. 
consider the impact of united and divided government. I think that's really important. Somewhere in your essay, and I mentioned it in Checks and Balances, you have to also bring in the fact that the type of government may affect the extent to which these features work or do not work. Examples are important um, in US politics, but you are also rewarded for showing an accurate understanding of processes and institutions. So revise what each branch can do to the others. Revise those checks and balances. Make sure that you are accurate when you are writing about them. Don't obsess over impeachment and war. Now, I have mentioned that the president is commander in chief. I have mentioned impeachment. But I think the most important and frequent thing Congress does is simply to examine legislation and examine the work of government. And therefore, I think you need to focus on legislative checks just as much, probably more than these other um, exciting checks and balances, which are essentially rarely used. And the last thing is keep repeating the words in the question Define the words in such a way that will help you to stay relevant. So early on, I mentioned uh, what uh, not being relevant and not working would would look like. And and I said that to not work, um, these features would would fail to avoid the concentration of power, would fail to protect rights uh, and would fail to avoid excessive gridlock uh, when it came to legislation and taking decisive action. So in that sense, I've defined it. You can define it in your introduction and then refer back to those specific words in your uh, definition all the way throughout. And that will help you show the examiner that you're explaining the reasons for your opinions, not just uh, throwing knowledge, not just uh, dumping knowledge into an essay. So I hope you found those tips useful, both teachers and students. Uh, This is uh, a free podcast. Um, And if you subscribe to Plus Plus Plus, you can get two additional podcasts in the month of July. Um, And if you keep subscribing, that will happen every single month. And those podcasts will appear automatically in your podcast feed. So until the next time, I wish you all the best. Enjoy the summer. Take care. Goodbye.